Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is returning Mary Jo Klinker, the activist, agitator, and now associate professor and director of women's gender and sexuality studies at Winona State University in Minnesota. Welcome back, Mary Jo. Thanks for having me. You're the only guest that I ever get to see in yoga and then go home and talk to you on the phone, <laughs> at least for the purpose of a podcast. So, yeah, that's always, you know, weird. But last time we talked about um, you were you were talking about online dating as a feminist and we were talking about kind of online dating and the Me Too movement in general. So I wanted to follow up. Uh, how's it going? Well, if I'm that's still if that's not too personal, I mean. Oh uh, no, that's totally okay. Um, I think everything is political, so we should make the personal political. Um, I am still happily single, and uh, what I've learned of online dating is I was able to use our previous discussion from the last podcast as a way to like vet out um, that people that I potentially would go on interviews with um, <laughs> as to whether or not they were afraid of feminists, uh, which was good, but I also fell into this bizarre trap where a lot of um, men consider themselves feminist, but also... Um, don't really understand gendered communication and expectations. And so I found myself like being asked to like, one example, read a play that a man wrote from the perspective of a woman. And he wanted me to read it and tell him whether or not he had done a good job at being a woman in his piece of fiction. Um, or men who have contacted me and, and we've gone on a date and have asked me to read like, their work on pedagogy, despite the fact they've taught very little, and then offer me pedagogical advice. So it's reminded me a lot of uh, Rebecca Solnit's piece, uh, Men Explain Things to Me. So I would say, like, men ask intellectual labor of me. Um, but overall, I'm happy it's summer and this is all good. <laughs> the uh, The idea of writing a play from a woman's viewpoint and then Sending it to someone who is very clearly identifying themselves as a feminist, that's really putting yourself out there. So I got to say, if it were any good, he, 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 he really, I guess, went straight for the like high water mark on that. <laughs> well, you know, this was a pretty big deal at the beginning of the summer. There was this uh, tweet, which was something along the lines of like um, men writing women. And if you haven't seen it, you should check it out. It's brilliant. Like a it's hashtag? Based... Yes. Yes. Okay. And it was examples like, um, she walked into the room, but all I saw was her breast. <laughs> so so um, check that out. I, I actually decided to save myself some labor and not read the piece because there's plenty <laughs> of brilliant work being written by um, queer activists and feminists right now. So I, I didn't read it. <laughs> And I, I didn't accept the offer of an interview either. So, and by the way, I call first dates interviews because it seems appropriate. I, I picked up on that immediately. And I mean, yeah. that's what they are. Uh, yeah. I, I think you could say that job interviews are often like first dates. So. Oh, yeah. <sighs> yeah. So the topic that we wanted to broach first today, uh, and we had mentioned it in the last episode a little more briefly, but the idea of abolition as uh, a, a modern concept and its origin. 
Uh, we had specifically been talking about prison abolition. Um, but I feel like maybe we should back up a little bit and talk about abolition in general. Yeah. Um, you know, the way that it came up in our last conversation is that I, I teach an upper level queer theoretical and um, political approaches course. And the bulk of the course is looking at writing by queer activists addressing prison abolition. And I think I mentioned that one of the reasons for that is that um, a disproportionate number of folks of color and then queer people by population end up incarcerated because of crimes of poverty. So to talk a little bit about abolition, um, the origins of it in the United States go back to the 1800s in the abolition movement against slavery, which was, you know, slaves fighting for their rights to be recognized as humans and, um, and other allies, uh, white progressive allies at the time, working in solidarity with them. And the contemporary abolition movement really is about addressing the remaining relics of slavery in the United States. So when you build a system of violence, you can't keep it as some benevolent thing, essentially would be like a really easy argument of it. Um, but to give you an idea of like the way, the rubric I would say of, of abolition politics that is being used right now amongst activists are anywhere from prison abolition, marriage abolition, which I'd love to talk about. I'm an unapologetic marriage abolitionist. Um, so prison abolition, um, recent demands to abolish ICE, demands to abolish police, all are taking from that longstanding critique of what enslavement looks like and how the policies and practices of enslavement are built into institutions in the United States. Um, <clears throat> so just to give you like a brief definition of prison abolition, then maybe we can break out into different types of abolition. Um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore is one of my favorite. Um, she's a human geography, ge geographer, anti-racist scholar. And she writes about it as a movement whose analysis and action is centered to eradicate the need for cages. Okay. And so when we think about abolition theory, it's not just about abolishing the existence of mass incarceration in prisons, but it's about recreating a new system or allowing for a paradigm shift. So when I mentioned that a lot of folks of color and queer people and um, you know folks who are um, don't have access to education end up in prison at higher rates, it's oftentimes because of social violences more so than it is individual. And so abolition is against interpersonal violence. It's about putting energy towards the root issues like racism, like classism, and um, really addressing issues like poverty by demanding things like a living wage and um, redistribution of our current budgets that go mostly towards um, militarism, that go largely towards corporations and a redistribution of that to like recognizing that humans need to eat and be able to, you know, afford to have families and care for those families in healthy environments. And if we don't have access to those tools, we'll continue to create the argument for mass incarceration. So abolition isn't just about ending something, it's about building something simultaneously. Sure. Uh, I've, I've yeah. watched documentaries about the uh, uh, cycle like when you come, when you look at, uh, say, project housing, and mm -hmm. when you are not provided with very basic, um, when very basic needs are not provided for, 
there's a higher chance you turn to uh, crime, which seems perfectly logical. Uh, and then you mm-hmm. go into a system that does not provide any alternatives for you, releases you back out with less than you had before because now you're an ex ex-con. And like this yeah. idea of this revolving door, and I, I feel like that's probably uh, at least near the front of the argument. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Michelle Alexander refers to that as the new Jim Crow because we have essentially recreated um, a second class citizenship based around segregation by the mass incarceration of black and Latino men, largely attached to the the uh, war on drugs that started in the 1980s after Rockefeller laws, um, which Reagan followed up with. And, you know, under Reagan, we see a lot of drastic economic shifts that include a a real slash of the security networks that were created for social welfare. And so you can't create that kind of economic violence and then not argue for the need to incarcerate people, which was an insidious construction of white supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. Does it feel like yeah. we're currently, not when I say we, I mean the country and its ad- administration, um, yeah. currently stripping away everything that would prevent a class war? Uh, yeah, you know, in preparation for this discussion, like every day of my life is agitation, um, which fits the um, beginning portion, but <laughs> I just got out of... Uh, Meetings last week, I'm a proud member of a union and um, have been raised by family members who uh, have dedicated their lives to democratic workplaces through collective bargaining. And last week's Supreme Court decision around Janus really is a gutting of the ability to create an argument for um, living wage jobs for working class people. Uh, It essentially makes it uh, impossible for unions to any longer have members who I refer to as union freeloaders uh, to pay fair share in order to still receive the benefits of a union. So um, we're seeing some real structural policy changes that are making it increasingly more dangerous and more likely to see a large divide between the haves and have nots in this country, which really should not be a shock considering that the 45th president that was elected has absolutely no resume for the job of president except for his ability to um, economically exploit people. Yeah. 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 Um, The uh, most recent jobs report shows a record uh, level of employment. Uh, We are, we, it's, it's feasible that we could see uh, a point where there are more jobs available than there are unemployed people to fill them, uh, which would be, as far as I know, historical or historic. Um, but at the same time, but workers, the big but. <laughs> w- workers' rights are diminishing. Wages have remained stagnant. Uh, there's, there's incentive for employers because of the lack of the, the small labor pool that's available. There's incentive for them to offer higher wages and reasons for people to take and keep jobs. But the money's not there right now. Like the ability to do that isn't there. And I don't see us doing anything that's going to fix that. Oh, it's, it's complete greed. And like you pointed out, um, there might be increased jobs, but those jobs are not living wage jobs. Um, And so we've seen since the recession in 2008, in the last decade, 
um, stagnant job, uh, stagnant uh, wages, but even further, we've seen a creation of low wage jobs so that it can look as though there's an un, that there's no longer the large rate of unemployment, but we're not actually seeing that people can live under the conditions of employment that they have. Well, in the, uh, I guess the employers, uh, when I've read what they have to say about it, they're saying that the jobs remain open because <laughs> the skilled labor to fill a lot of the jobs isn't there. And the unemployment rate is measured against the number of job openings. Like mm -hmm. employers currently looking for workers and the number of workers currently looking for employment. And if, if they don't match up, if the few like skilled labor jobs never are going to get filled because everyone who has those skills is already gainfully employed. I don't see this being a metric that's I, what I see it is a, a metric that, uh, that 45 can get up on a pulpit and talk about how thanks to him, we fixed the problem without actually fixing anything. Yeah. And I mean, I think it goes, it goes back to actually the question that you're posing and really the problem that you're showing or exposing goes back to those basic tenets of abolition theory that we need a redistribution of wealth and we need a redistribution. Yeah. But we, I mean, I, I can't help but see the world in that way. Like we will not get to a place in which there are trained skilled laborers if they don't have access to education. And we have privatized education in such a way that people don't have access to it. So unless we really think through the structures of oppression that are built into a capitalist society, which to go back to the origins of abolition theory are based on anti-black racism and the settler colonialism of indigenous lands, we can't even begin discussing fixing the problem. And I know like when I teach these things, we have to do that very historically and meticulously. And it takes, as we've talked about in the past, like a whole semester. But right now people are pointing these out in like short, um, letters to the editor and op-eds and people are like, oh, you're just whimsical and idealistic. And it's like, no, this is a lot of labor and your problems are going to require very creative responses. Like this isn't just something that we can gloss over with a, a brief reform change. Like a, we should be recognizing that it is time to make demands for very strong structured changes. So I guess, mm, I would say this conversation could go a couple of directions right now. Mm -hmm. I can go off on the things that I know about, uh, which would be capitalism, socialism, economy, or we can talk about the reasons you're here. And you know, <laughs> I feel comfortable with both. I would love to talk more about abolition theory. And that's I don't, what we're going to do. And I don't think that we can have that conversation without looking at intersecting oppressions like capitalism. So, right, but it also yeah. it also means that I need to uh, phrase my questions so that you get to talk, which uh, it's a skill I'm working on. So, so <laughs> and I I so appreciate it because as a cisgender man, you recognize that. <laughs> I hear myself doing it all the time. Um, so we're talking about like the economic um, struggles behind. Uh, we'll, we'll say class oppression and and the prison system mm -hmm. uh, and how it all plays in. How does that translate to the current uh, news headline about uh, the Abolish ICE movement? 
Okay, awesome. That's a great question. So when I was kind of talking about the brief history of abolition and giving a definition, I wanted to go through some things that have been demanded of what abolition looks like. So if I can give like just a brief um, four points here. So coming out of the Black Lives Matter platform that came out two years ago, which is a really amazing document that I think everyone should read who's organizing in communities, rural and urban areas, there are four things that you can kind of solidify what they're saying about the contemporary um, policing mechanisms in America, which really are relics of slavery, which is to disarm the police, demilitarize the police, defund the police, and disband. And um, one thing you maybe don't know about me, my uh, original research in getting my, my doctorate is in feminist anti-militarist movements. And it's really not that dissimilar to the demands of feminists who do anti-war work, which is to disarm militaries, demilitarize, defund militaries by de redistribution, and then finally disband them. So this is a long history of making a demand about removing guns, removing structured militaries, defunding them, and, and then finally disbanding. So again, that sounds like really wide and vast. So I kind of wanted to make a little bit clearer what that looks like. The reason that so many folks in the anti-police brutality movement have argued to demilitarize the police is post-September 11, 2001, we have seen um, a number of military resources that have been pumped into communities. Oh, okay? a bunch. Yeah. Yeah, a bunch. And, and this is where the topic becomes personal for me and um, is something that I'm hoping we'll get to have a longer, lengthy discussion about. But I grew up in a town about an hour from here in rural Wisconsin that in 2002 put in a medium security prison in a town of 1,200 people in the highest unemployed county in Wisconsin. And the argument was to create jobs. So if you build a prison, you have to fill it. And when you fill it, you, you pit working class people who need living wage jobs against low income people, mostly people of color forced into those cages. I mean, that's the reality of it. Yeah. So I, w I was raised as like a white working class kid watching this happen around me, having like hearing different perspectives on it. And it's now teaching this that I recognize this isn't just something like outside of me when I'm talking as a white, you know, woman living in a rural area in Minnesota as like, I want to talk about abolition. It's actually something that I've lived in my small town. And so the, de the militarization of police in my hometown in the highest unemployed county in Wisconsin with 1,200 people has a tank in it. The police have access to a tank in the community I grew up in. And they've used it in, um, in recently, uh, about two years ago, there was um, a armed standoff with a, a suspect in a, in a murder and they brought out a tank. And it wasn't until then that I realized living in the Midwest that my town of 1,200 people had a tank in it. <laughs> and I, I can't separate that from the reality of the creation of a prison system. The, the underemployment of folks of color, the increased rate of incarcerating them, the increased rate of only military jobs. I graduated high school. Now I'm really going to date my, well, not date myself. I'm going to make myself sound really young, but like 2003 is when I graduated high school and almost 30% of my classmates went into the military, not because 
of already existing patriotic fervor in the community, but because they wanted to go to college and have a job. So like militarization is insidiously woven into the fabric of so many low-income areas intentionally. It's essentially a class draft, like, and we know that's existing right now. So to kind of get back on track, I'm sorry, I kind of went off there. Um, what we see post-September 11, 2001 is a militarization of the police, and in 2003, under Homeland Security, we see the creation of ICE, okay? So Immigration Customs Enforcement. And it doesn't mean that we didn't previously have immigration enforcement, but we see it under the rubric of the war on terrorism and the construction of Homeland Security in the post 9-11 world. So the post 9-11 world, it is not a secret to those of us who do organizing and read anti-racist theory and who teach it is really based on overt racial policing um, as a mechanism. And so you cannot have those tools come out of that type of racist violence and then suggest that it's doing something that's benevolent, to go back to that similar phrase, like it is constructed out of that violence. So the movement to abolish ICE, I really don't see as any, any way separated from the movement to abolish policing. And the question that, that I think is really critical, because I pointed out that feminist anti-war activists have always made these demands too, is what makes you feel genuinely safe in your community? And that's always the question I approach when I talk to people who have different political leanings than me, when I wanna talk about militarism, when I wanna talk about policing, and when I wanna now talk about immigration, I say, what makes you feel safe? What makes you feel like your family is going to be okay? And they say things like food and access to healthcare. They don't say things like ICE. They don't say things like our huge military and more than 2,000 military bases abroad. More cops and, on the street. Or cops on the street. And when I say that I'm talking to people that have different political views than me, I'm talking about people I grew up with who are mostly white working class folks. And I'm trying to draw parallels to our experience, right? Because that's the only way that you're going to be able to broach really difficult conversations. And when you ask people what makes them feel safe, they say things like food, access to jobs, and healthcare. And guess what we don't have in America right now? All of the above. <laughs> yeah. And so when you start to look at like the demands of the Primson abolition movement and abolition theory at large, it really is offering a blueprint for something that could be really structurally important for social movements. Yeah. We're think and since we last talked. Um, there have been, uh, well, I, I suppose, uh, Oh, can I say something real quick? Please do. We forgot. Yeah. Um, I was a part of a two weeks ago in our community that we share in Winona, Minnesota, um, roughly 20,000 people. Does that sound accurate? Uh, depends on whether colleges are in session uh, or not. That's true. Um, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I was a part of a group of women that planned our, our rally and speakers in response to the, you know, segregation, separate separation of families, which has a long history in the United States and overt racist immigration practices happening currently. And one of our decisions was to write a letter to a local senator who is a Republican who has not denounced the practices around immigration from the Republican Party or from you know, the leader of his party, the 45th president. And one of the things that we wrote in this letter was pointing out that this isn't like something like far away from Winona, Minnesota. This impacts our community immediately. 
because 60 miles away in Pine Island, Minnesota, which is a small rural community, not that dissimilar from the rural community I grew up in that put a prison in in 2002, currently the city council three weeks ago voted to put in a, um, a 640 bed detention center. And the purpose would be to incarcerate people that they're processing for deportation. And so the very issue that we saw of building prisons and then having to criminalize people and force them in them so that the corporations who aided in building them and make money off of the continuation of prisons are the exact same people that are owning the process to these deportation centers. So, it's the so this would be filled with people within, I, I assume, like the upper Midwest who were facing deportation? Yeah, yeah likely due to stricter crackdowns on immigrant labor and things like that? Yeah, and I can tell you, um, just to cite a really amazing local um, group uh, in Minneapolis, the Minneapolis, uh, it's called MPD 150, and their demand is there was a time before the police and there will be a time after. And they really are, a, they're a group of multiracial, lots of queer young people, multiracial activists that are demanding to abolish the police in Minneapolis and pointing to the fact that the creation of the police in Minnesota was about rounding up um, the Dakota people in a genocide against Dakota people. And um, their work is really, again, looking at right now the way that immigration, ICE, and, and police in Minneapolis work together in order to criminalize certain populations. And one of the populations that we are seeing highly criminalized as immigrants in Minneapolis are the Somali population. So yeah. we, we can't, we cannot like ice is not separate of policing in America and ice and the police in America are not separate of our militaries any longer. These are strategically constructed around certain endpoints and those endpoints are not humanity. Do you ever listen to KRS one? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, occasionally. Oh, you mean KRS One? The I thought you meant the the local radio station. Yes, no. I do. Yes, absolutely. KRS One. Ruminations was a great book. I can't, yeah, I can't remember yeah. what song it was, but he talks about uh, officer, the origin of officer being overseer. Yeah, and he does like um, a breakdown. He's like, uh, say it really fast, overseer, overseer, officer, 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 and yeah, yeah I it, there are roots, and whether that's a legitimate etymology or not. Uh, it is the the concept is the same and the violent roots seem the same to me. Well, and actually, um, a really fabulous abolitionist um, and a theorist that I utilize in my from from Black Lives Matter to Palestine feminist theories and politics course is Kianga Taylor's um, from Black Liberation to Black Lives Matter. And in the book, she really makes the the, the historical point that that police originally were about enforcing slavery. And it was always at that period, the, the white immigrants that were, you know, considered lower class status that were given those jobs to intentionally pit people against one another. Like that, I mean, I can't help but see that history is eerily reminiscent of putting prisons and ICE deportation centers in low-income white communities that have no jobs. Like, yeah, they're, they're constantly utilizing the old narratives of violence in new ways. And it's always about a continuation of racism and capitalism. So I didn't read 
any of the articles yet, but my news stream this morning was filled with the headlines about uh, active military. Uh, what are they? What are people in the military called? Soldiers? Yes, soldiers. Um, being immigrants who were uh, active in the military were being suddenly discharged. Like originally, that was considered a path to citizenship. You serve yeah. in the military, you have a, a path to being a naturalized citizen. And they are suddenly being discharged and facing deportation yeah. in one fell stroke. Do you know, if I were to you know get around to reading these articles, which wouldn't be until later tonight, is there, what, what is the, the root of this? What change happened? Well, I mean, the current leadership happened. Um, <laughs> I yeah, and, that much. I and assume. it's not that simple. It's not that simple. I will hold myself accountable. Um, you know, I'm really tired of having it thrown in my face. I taught under the Obama era about post-racism and post-feminism as myths, and he was referred to frequently as the deporter in chief. He, I mean, yeah. his immigration policies were not um, to go back to the word I've used so many times, benevolent. Um, however, uh, what we've seen is a drastic shift. I mean, we are seeing overt nationalistic policies that are really about white nationalism that are being enforced through the existence of institutions. Um, it's interesting to me. I didn't get a chance to read the articles yet, but I wasn't surprised when I saw the headlines because I teach in queer theories and politics where I became um, mostly familiar with the, the work that I teach on prison abolition is through a group called Against Equality. And um, I really came to them through my work on prison, on, on uh, marriage abolition, but I can talk about that later if you'd like. <laughs> but um, they have some really great pieces looking at when, you know, when dreamers, when they were starting to think through the process of protecting dreamers in the United States, it was about offering a pathway to citizenship and access to education. And it wasn't until later that they yoked the military onto that and, and yoked that to citizenship and there were a lot of queer activists of color that were very much opposed to that because they said, you are forcing people to take on potential trauma for the hopes of a nation. And I mean, their words were, are over a decade old now and they were prophetic. I mean, when I saw those headlines today, I know the reality of the, the, the abuse of people by power, right? And the claims to accessing something after your labor and, and then having that completely eroded. So it's like frat hazing with higher consequences. Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it, yeah, I can't, I, I don't have much to say to that other than the fact <laughs> that these are, these are masculinist. I'm not saying all male because there's a lot of white women at the heads of, you know, home, at the heads of some of these spaces that have been overtly violent. We have to hold that accountable. But they're masculinist spaces, as in masculinity dictates the behavior of it. And I, I can't help but like recognize how many women have written about um, narratives of domestic violence and how um, the current president, after you know, really being taken to task by large community organizing about the um, violence against children. I mean, systematic sexual abuse is happening in in these holding centers, violent centers against children. And and then he says, okay, I won't do it, but I'll make um, you know, I'll make it possible for indefinite um indefinite 
holding of undocumented immigrants. And it's it's eerily similar to domestic violence, as a number of people have pointed out. Like you do something really heinous and then you're supposed to become the savior by like lightening that violence slightly, but really it's still the same violence. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I just think that it it's it's really not that dissimilar to our conversation about Me Too. Um, the Me Too movement was really about exposing certain individuals, but the fact of the matter is that the the pathway for that structural violence already existed and was the foundation of the United States. So, yeah, I I appreciate that because you are so well versed in all of these uh, uh, activist topics, you you are able to see the the roots and the connections and boil things down to perhaps systemic evils that that cause everything. I appreciate that. I do. So the uh I guess we're going to work towards the top 3, but I absolutely am not going to cut this conversation short. The Yeah, can I can I actually say something really important that just happened that I think would be tied to this conversation? That's hilarious because the segue I was just about to use was the exact same segue I had before when you wanted to say something and I had the same response. Absolutely. Please go ahead. Okay. Well, you know, the, the point about things being connected, um, the roots of oppression are connected, but so too are social justice movements. And I, I hate I, I think we undermine the power of resistance when we don't talk about that. So I just want to make sure that we like give a platform to that. Um, I just gave a lecture at uh, Winona State University to mostly um, first generation high school kids who are coming to campus and trying out campus. It's called Hope Academy, Academy and trying out college. And um, my lecture was called No Justice, No Pride about the origins of racial justice and LGBT history in the United States. And as many people know we just finished pride and as an openly bi woman i'm pretty always pretty excited about pride but i'm really disappointed in the way that pride has been um, commodified and watered down because the origins of pride go back to june 28th 1968 and stonewall yes yeah to stonewall and 69 or 68 i just said that and then i was like i don't remember okay well we'll check that out um but uh the the really cool thing about knowing this history is that Stonewall 69. Okay. Excellent. I'm glad I wasn't off. Okay. Um, (laughs) Stonewall, uh, was, was a bar that was, you know, the mob frequented there. They kind of ran the bar and the police came in and harassed, um, openly gay folks. There were a lot of, um, trans women of color that spent time in the area, oftentimes engaging in sex work as as a means to live, as a form of labor. And um, on that evening, people said no more. I mean, they were like humiliating people by pulling them out very publicly and outing them in a violent fashion. And, um, and people fought back and it was a three-day riot. So oftentimes, like in abolition movements, we say Stonewall was a riot against the police. And we can't forget that because that very much... Um, allows for a recognition that LGBT history has always been tied to abolition movements and the roots of anti-racism. And at the forefront of that have always been discussed as um, Marsha P. Johnson, Miss Major, and Sylvia Rivera, who are three trans women of color, and had all three spent time at one point in time in the tombs or incarcerated for being, um, not only being trans, but for engaging in what wouldn't be known as crimes of poverty, like sex work. And, um, 
I think what's really important is a part of that abolition um, framework is about decriminalizing sex work and recognizing it as labor and allowing for sex workers to speak for themselves. And I mean, giving them a name. I was just talking to a friend about this. Like, you know, when we talk about sex work, we talk about Johns and we talk about prostitutes. Like Johns get a name and sex workers are like dehumanized to a level that their labor is totally erased and they're, they're not even humans. And so that, I mean, that's just built into the system of sexism. What happened is um, Sylvia Rivera was a uh, trans Latina who at the age of 10, um, after being physically abused in her household, ran away and um, lived on the streets, was homeless. About 40% of LGBT youth, no, not for, back up. Right now in America, uh, 40% of the youth under 18 that are homeless are LGBT because that's disproportionate to their population. And that's a long history and a problem with abuse in, in homes that um, are homophobic and transphobic. So Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson was um, a black uh, trans woman. The two of them are said to have been at Stonewall. There are different accounts that suggest that they weren't. Um, Sylvia Rivera, to the day she died, claimed that she threw the first Molotov cocktail at the police. Um, was very much at the forefront of the first Pride Parade in 1970, in which um, a lot of people don't know this, but the first Pride Parade, there was a violent outlashing against LGBT people walking in the streets, but they walked past intentionally a prison and chanted to the prisoners. So like solidarity was built into that pride. Um, but one thing I wanted to point out is that after um, Stonewall, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson started um, street transvestite action revolutionaries. And as women of color who had to, had to perform sex work in order to live, they decided to create STAR as a safe haven for trans kids and gender non-conforming kids and um, offered them a safe place to live and actually perform sex work so that young kids didn't have to. And I think it's a really impart, important part of LGBT history and it really centers um, women of color. And more importantly, it ties it to the long history of, of fighting um, brutal systemic realities of poverty, of homelessness, and of police brutality. And so because Pride just ended, I wanted to bring up that, that really important reminder of what resistance looks like historically. Well, okay. So that leads us into a discussion of the current state of gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender rights, um, as well as a lot of other things that would and have been typically decided by the Supreme Court, which is now in <laughs> serious jeopardy yeah. of losing, uh, I would say up until now, up until uh, Kennedy left or, or resigned, retired, that's the word. Um, he wasn't a moderate, but he was a key vote in things like Roe versus Wade, gay marriage, yep. Uh, a lot of the LGBTQAI, I don't even know what the, sorry. <laughs> so we call that, we call that the alphabet soup, but I, I mean, I, yeah. Uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, um, ace, which means asexual. Some say, um, some say questioning with Q and allies. And, and then that, the plus. Right. Then the plus symbol at the end. The plus to go with two spirit and all kinds of umbrella terms that oftentimes get left out. But yeah, um, LGBTQ is what I usually use just to shorthand it. But yeah, this is why I appreciate the term queer. Yeah. And that, you know, as we've talked about, has a pretty contentious history. But um, 
Uh, yes, yeah. I and, know. And it's, and it's intergenerational, you know? Like, I mean, I identify as queer, but that doesn't mean everyone does, so. Sure. But it's monosyllabic, so. Anyway, uh, with Kennedy retiring and Trump just getting started, it's pretty definite, no matter how hard the uh, fairly impotent Democrat, Democrat Party uh, fights, there's going to be a very conservative justice taking his place. Yeah. And that puts a strong majority. And historic court decisions, Roe v. Wade comes to mind, are suddenly at stake of, of being reversed. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. So, you talk. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts, so I'll try and keep them brief. Um, fuck is the first one that comes to mind. Um, but uh, I will say... So um, kind of that segue with LGBT issues, uh, when I started, I said there's all kinds of abolition and I said there's also marriage abolitionists and um, marriage abolitionists are folks like myself who really don't think that the state should dictate um, what kinship looks like and more importantly, how state benefits are divvied up to certain people based on their relationship to the state and each other, aka marriage. And so... um, Well, it was a historically momentous and important moment in 2013 when the Supreme Court decided um, to ensure access to same-sex partnership via marriage. Uh, It also completely cut out the VRA that day, which was an anti-Black racist backslide that we saw. And it's really interesting because it was queer people of color that said, like, you know, our fight for marriage has erased really the reality of that we could be pushing for more radical agendas like redistribution of social welfare resources over just intimate partnership in the privatized home sphere. Because like right now people say things like, oh, I want healthcare. And then the answer is marriage. But the only way that uh, a family gets healthcare is if one of the people has access to healthcare in their job. You know what I mean? Like you don't just get married and like the state government's like, now you get healthcare. So um, there's a long history there. Um, and I wanted to point out earlier, and I didn't, and what made me think of it is that abolitionists are radical in the sense that they're going to the roots of violence and they want to eradicate it and create new systems. Reformists are people who want to exist in the current system and make changes to it in order to make it um, livable for the people who have been excluded and marginalized within it. Um, both are important simultaneously. Uh, my efforts and teaching and my own organizing work usually is is tied to um, more radical forms of acknowledgement. But the Supreme Court is reminding us how fucking real reform work is and how necessary it is. And so specifically when you brought up Roe v. Wade, I mean, I've told friends, like, I have to get a bunch of emergency contraception. I want to have it at my house because I don't know how much longer that will be available as a viable form of birth control. But I also think with Roe v. Wade, um, when 2006, I was working at a women's resource center and we put on an event called what would happen if Roe v. Wade was overturned. And like, you know, to my, at the time, like 20 year old mind, I was like, oh, that's a joke. That will never happen. And now I'm like, yeah, that, I mean, that very much really could happen and it would be dangerous, but it would be horrible. I mean, anyone who lived pro 19, pre 1973 is aware of what it looks like, but it means that women die. Um, it means, uh, internationally that we know that there's a lot of places that also have really strong anti-abortion um, policies, oftentimes influenced by United States, um, international affairs and, and foreign aid. But, um, <clears throat> 
the response that I received from my dear friend, Susan Terrell, who is one of my mentors, she was on that panel and she does um, feminist history. And she said, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, we'll see a recreation of what's known as uh, the Jane Collective. Have you heard of Jane Collective? No. So Jane Collective was a group of women in Chicago that trained themselves to perform abortions in a safe manner and traveled around to women and performed abortions because they weren't available. So women created the systems that male politicians refused them. Huh. And, and I think um, it's a really powerful reminder. Uh, I don't think that it's the system that we want. We want access to safe um, and healthy access to abortions, which um, by and large is a very safe procedure. But, um, and it, it is, I should have said that, it is a safe pr procedure and it's not a safe procedure when it's not Right. I'm going to say, yes, it's, it's safe a, when it's, it's legal and done in a sterile. Yeah. And, it, yeah. <laughs> and it's not when it's not regulated and, um, and abortion has existed and abortion will continue to exist. You don't say, you don't say no abortions and it doesn't happen. We know this, like we don't teach absence only and then teens don't have sex. We know that didn't work and we don't say no drugs and then people don't do drugs. Like the fact is humans make human decisions and humans need access to safe conditions to to be healthy. Do you know when I when I decided I wanted to start doing drugs? I I remember pretty clearly. Uh, I believe the age of seven, being shown. Uh, it was actually an anti-smoking film, like on a reel to reel, and. Yeah. My immediate thought, like they showed the kid like trying to impress his friends and he started coughing and I was like, I could do that. I know I know, I could figure out how to do that. <laughs> I could do that without coughing. And then the same year they showed us one about like heroin junkies, like don't do drugs. This is Reagan era. And I immediately decided that everything they were showing me was just people that didn't know how to do it right. And I knew that was where I was going, and I did it. So I feel like the story you shared is like um, perverse power meets masculine bravado, like, <laughs> right? And <What>? so like, <laughs> you could view it that way, yes. Foucauldian, like Michelle Foucault's concept of perverse power is like where you say, like, where, where you put a restriction on something, power grows around it, or you usurp the existing model for your own, you know? So I think. I think it's in it. We know that of D.A.R.E. programs, right? We know that D.A.R.E. programs were not successful except for getting children to police their parents, right? And so uh. um, and it was a way to police the poor again. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's it's a very it's a human discussion. And, and actually to tie it back to our earlier discussion with Michelle Alexander's work on the new Jim Crow we know that across racial and class statuses, drugs are being used, but only certain populations are being policed for it. And um, much like segregation that continues to exist in communities, the the folks that that white people are buying drugs from are mostly white folks. Like, and we know, and they're not the people who are incarcerated for for dealing either. And so, like, all of these things are human issues, but certain communities are disproportionately impacted by them and oppressed by them with the changes of these policies and enforcements. All right. Well, I, I hate to draw a line, but I have to draw a line somewhere. Yep, let's do it. We'll move on to the top three picks. I'm going to take a quick break for a sponsor. This episode of Systematic is brought to you by Text Expander. Text Expander multiplies your team's productivity, making up-to-date shared knowledge available instantly. Using Text Expander, all of your team's common responses are accessible and searchable through simple abbreviations and keyboard shortcuts. 
written and edited by your best writers, available on multiple platforms, Mac OS, iOS, Windows, and web, updated immediately everywhere whenever they're modified. If you're on a team, Text Expander will change your life, leaving more time for what you do best. For larger teams, Text Expander supports single sign-on or SSO and grouping accounts to make onboarding a breeze. Visit textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander and a big thanks to Smile and Text Expander for supporting Systematic. All right. So that brings us to our top three picks. And I, I've been thinking that maybe I'm going to stop doing my own top three picks. And we're just going to talk about every guest top three picks. Cause I got to say after 225 episodes, me coming up with top three picks every week has gotten to be a bit, um, bit of a strain and a bit of a stretch. Uh, that being said, I do have three this week, um, that I'm actually excited about and you do as well. So let's get started. Okay. Do you want me to go first? Yes. Okay. I have, I'm really excited about these um, things that I picked, but I want to start talking about a book that I just read uh, by Therese Marie Melhot, which is called Heartberries. And she's um, an indigenous writer um, and it's a memoir. And um, I went on a vacation and I was like, I'm not going to take Maggie Nelson's Blue X, which is my all time favorite feminist book about. I have depression. read that whole thing. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. I think you might've heard about it from someone I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so I refused to take it cause I was working on like self-help or self-help. And then of course she opened up with Maggie Nelson and I was like, this is going to be my book. Um, in preparation, I, I pulled out like a two sentence thing. Can I read it to Do you? Do it. Yeah. Okay. Because I think your readers will fall in love with the writing. So my readers, your readers. Oh God, listeners. Yes. You're accusing everyone listening of being literate, but I think that's a fair, <laughs> a, a safe bet. Yes. So she says um, of a past relationship, the weight and the dust of me are in every thread of your mattress. Love is tactile. Learning always first and foremost. When you loved me, it was degrading. Using me for love degraded me worse. You had. You should have just fucked me. It was degener degenerative. You inside me, outside, then I leave, then I come back, get fucked. You look down at me and say, I love you, I love you. I go home and I degenerate alone. The distinctness of my bed and its corners are fucked up by my fucking you. My agency is degraded. All right, so it's officially an explicit tag on this podcast. I had been thinking I can, I can add some bleeps and we can still get away with the non-explicit, but I can't bleep poetry. I know, so, and that's so beautiful. Yeah, we're there now. Yeah. Welcome, yeah, okay. welcome to Explicit Systematic. <laughs> I'm proud. For for years, I tried to keep this show like PG-13, but I kind of gave up. Some some guests just don't warrant a PG-13 label. But yes, that is beautiful. And it's from Heartberries? Is that... Yes. Is that one word or two? Two words. Got it. Yeah. And if it's anything like Bluettes, if the inspiration feels the same i'll i'll get into it because they are they're dark in a way that i can really latch on to uh dark but hopeful like beautiful yeah yeah and i i think like what what this does different than bluettes is it offers um women of color to really talk about specifically um, the experiences that are completely different. Maggie Nelson very much writes as a white woman and I appreciate your voice and, and really to connect with her voice. This was different and also um, true to me in, in, in other ways. So it was powerful. I talked about it on another show, but 
did, did you ever see the graphic novel Dear Woman? No, I haven't. Uh, I won't go into depth, but it was written by uh, First People, Native American, uh, female writers and illustrators. And it talks about, it's about this myth of the, the Dear Woman, which was like a, a mythological creature with the... Uh, top half being a beautiful woman, the bottom half being like a two-legged deer with hooves. And it, it was the, the moral of this story through all of the mythology threads was uh, the, the um, sin, the, the destruction of sin uh, being seduced by a woman would lead to pain and death, all of these things. And it's a woman's take and it focuses around uh, sexual assault within the indigenous community. Or more than likely, um, the large amount of sexual assault uh, that is attacked upon women of color, right? Yes. Yeah, because one and, in three, and the lack in... of the lack of policing or or the lack of um, yeah. uh, justice around it. Yeah. Well, and actually, just to tie in our previous conversation, um, the most recent iteration of the Violence Against Women Act acknowledges that one in three Native women experience sexual assault, and mostly the perpetrators are non-Native men. And um, trying to address uh, a way to deal with that in sovereign Native American and United States law. And um, the current president wants to demolish VAWA, and it will also um, impact gravely those victims of sexual assault on reservations yeah yeah but at this point that seems obvious yeah yeah sadly yeah Yeah. all right so my first pick uh i i haven't for in in winona where we both live uh there's this thing called the shakespeare the great shakespeare festival is that what it is great river shakespeare festival that is correct grsf i did their first website i should remember that but (laughs) Um, they've been around for years now and, uh, they, they bring in, uh, a, an amazing cast of actors from around the country and they perform, how, I don't know how long it runs, a few months, uh, of, of Shakespeare plays and they are always top notch, really good. I just have this thing where. Even in comfortable seats, asking me to sit for anything more than about an hour and a half is too much. And these plays often run total three hours plus. So I don't go. Uh, But during the preview week this year, I went to see Venus and Fur, which is not a Shakespeare play. And uh, I was... It's an hour and 45 minute, no intermission, which is something I can do. I can get through that in the uh, Black Box Theater. Have you seen this play? I have not yet, but I'm really excited to. You absolutely have to. Uh, Do not miss it. And this production of it is, it's brilliant. So for anyone unfamiliar with it, it was written, uh, I think 2000, maybe 2008. I actually could pull this up and, and speak with actual knowledge. Um, 2010 was the date it premiered, written by David Ives. And uh, it's about a director auditioning an actress. It's a two-person play. The whole thing is two people, one room. And which immediately the claustrophobia of that, I always enjoy. Like, those are my favorite plays. (laughs) 
where you don't have the relief of going off stage and someone else takes over for you. Uh, you get to see people really act at that point. Um, mm -hmm. And it, so you start off with very much a, a casting couch scene and it develops and these inner, the interplay between the characters, the roles that they take on are, cover a broad range of uh, kind of, I guess, relationship facets, uh, dominance, submission, subjugation, uh, cooperation, like all of these things play in and that I won't, no spoilers, but there's this part at the end where they switch roles. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're rehearsing, you know, they're doing lines. They switch roles. So he becomes the woman, she becomes the man. And prior to that, they were in a dom sub situation. They switch roles and then switch dom sub in the process. It gets crazy. It get, it's, it's brilliant. It'll leave your head spinning. Yeah, I'm really excited about like both the um, you know the power dynamics that exist, but the gender dynamics too. Uh -huh. So I've yeah, I've read a little bit about it and talked a lot with um, with a few of the folks who've been involved in it. So I'm looking forward to it. And the the girl who plays Vilma, Vilma, is that mm -hmm. uh, she's I shouldn't say girl, the woman who plays <laughs> that role. She is really good. She can play everything from like Jersey Girl to goddess and she does i mean she plays aphrodite so venus yeah it's good yeah i'll have to talk to you about it after i get to see it yes please do uh let's let's grab a drink and talk about it absolutely all right so your second pick oh you're gonna be mad because we talked about it already today um netflix uh nanette gamby's uh nanette i am not mad we have to talk about this oh my god okay I, it's like bringing together so much of my past. It's bringing together so much of what, things I don't know. And it's bringing together like so much of the conversations I've had with femmes in my life about violence that we've experienced. It was brilliant. It's hilarious. And it's, it's sad and real, but I, I pulled out like a quote that I loved, which is we only care about men's reputations, not their humanity. When she's talking about the me too movement and says, if hindsight is a gift, stop wasting my time. And yeah. I love that. Like, if hindsight is a gift, stop wasting my time. Like, that so eloquently articulates my emotions towards a lot of the gender-based violence I've experienced in my life. And it was really about the emotional labor um, that was extracted and then physical or emotional violence projected on my body. Like, and it was just so powerful. Yeah. And yeah. so... What fascinated me, I mean, the stories were, they were powerful, like extremely moving, but the delivery of it made it even more so. Uh, like this is Hannah Gadsby's, uh, she wants to get out of comedy and she has the line um, in, in, in stand-up, uh, you tell punchlines, yeah. but if you want to tell a story, it has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. And halfway through the set, she takes the jokes that she had started with, the ones that had punchlines, and she tells the actual endings of them. Yeah. And they're devastating. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that crowd was... The crowd that was there was, I mean, a lot of, uh, a lot of women. I mean, she's, you know, a queer comic. Mm -hmm. 
But I don't think people showed up expecting what they got hit with. And she did it in this masterful way that got everyone laughing and then got everyone feeling just feeling about yeah. what they just laughed at, but then kept them there. She kept them wanting to be a part of it. And it was, it's not what I signed up for at all. When I just watched my, like I picked a new comedy special on Netflix to watch. It was amazing. It left me. I talked about it for days. Well, you know, I'm like, even like us talking about like getting like, and I don't, but like bodily chills, like about how, you know, she, like you said, like not only punchlines, but she says trauma creates tension and tension requires jokes. And then she exposes her trauma. And I mean, her story about her mother and coming out was so powerful and so different than my story, but it made me, it made me want to call my mom in a different way. Like, because her relationship to her mom is so beautiful and she gets to share that, but it wasn't always without strife. And like, I remember I was in like Columbia house CD club in like 1997 <laughs> And my mom made me order the Indigo Girl Swamp Ophelia, which became my favorite album ever. And when I came out to my parents when I was 18 and I was dating a woman, my mom said, it's because I bought you that damn Indigo Girls album. And, uh, and you know, I can laugh about that now, but like at the time I was confused as hell. Sure. Um, and it's not nearly the same as her story, but it just reminded me of like how powerful women's sexuality is and intergenerational love and kindness. So she just brings so much to to life about humanity. Did you happen to see uh, Tig Notaro's last special? I didn't. No. Oh. Is it good? Yes. Watch it tonight. You'll understand. Okay. You'll understand why I say that by the time you get to the end of it. Okay. It's gonna be so. I I I wanna I wanna be there when you finish it, just so I can, yeah, see it register how this all how it all ties together. I'll text you. Sounds good. Um, yeah, good pick. Like uh, almost necessary pick. I wish I'd picked it. <laughs> Man, so my second pick. I've actually gotten, and I've talked about this in the last few episodes. Finally, at the age of forty. Um, in a couple weeks, um, started developing a love of comics, graphic novels, and uh, reading it as a as a form of literature, which I had always panned it in that regard before. Um, and so the pick is Comixology, which is an app for iPad where you can, if you have Comixology Unlimited you get access to 100,000 comics, including some uh, comiXology. Like, you know how Netflix does their own shows? Comixology mm -hmm. does their own comics. And uh, the one I'm reading right now and on the edge of my seat waiting for every episode is called Ask for Mercy. But I'm finding a ton of... Uh, comics, like not, I, I don't care about Marvel DC comics. I care about these kind of, uh, these voices that I would never have known about otherwise. Uh, indie voices talking about topics that would never have anything to do with the typical like Marvel scenario. And sometimes there are superpowers that are used, uh, as, uh, metaphors for other things. But a lot of times they're just stories told with more pictures than with 
long expository paragraphs. Mm-hmm. Do you get into comics at all? I haven't, but I should. This, I've been told that. This Comicsology app, and there's actually, like, there's one that you can get comics through Kindle. And if you're on, like, a Kindle Fire or you're on an iPad, it, it'll actually walk you through, like, a guide. You're not just flipping pages. It'll zoom into frames in the way that the author intended it to be read because with a lot of layouts, sometimes that's uh, confusing. It'll actually, like, tour you through the uh, the scenes and zoom in so you can actually see the artwork because it took me a while to stop just reading the words and then flipping the page to actually use the illustrations to understand all of the things that, had it been a book, uh, would have been written out for me. And stop, to stop taking that for granted and start noticing that the scene was actually painted just fine. I just only focused on the words and flipped the page. I'm starting to get it. What is it called again? The, the place you got it from? Well, Comixology is the app. C-O-M-I-X-O-L-O-G-Y. I have a friend who teaches comics and like a big part of it is the, the visual rhetorical analysis. I'm going to suggest it to her. That sounds great. I went to, I, I hadn't been to our local comic book shop, Jimmy Jams, mm -hmm. uh, since I was a child, we'll say high school. Uh, and I got really uh, turned off by the smell of the magic players in the back. <laughs> And, like, I just, I didn't, that wasn't my scene. I went back there recently, though, and she has quite the archive. There's an entire Neil Gaiman shelf, which I was, <laughs> I bought a couple Neil Gaiman books. But, yeah, no, I'm excited to go back there. They, she did not have the one that I was looking for, and uh, that was Hench Girl, which I learned about at C2E2. It's a story about a a a... a it's a henchman, right? Like, but mm -hmm. it's a girl who is underappreciated as in her job as the kind of like uh, underling of a supervillain, and she she can't get health care. You know, she's living paycheck to paycheck, and she's dealing with all these real world uh, uh, low income problems and real world female in the workplace problems. But at the same time, she's part of like this crime syndicate and she also has a conscience. And so she's constantly torn between like trying to find a real job with a resume that makes no sense in the real world. It's a delightful. Uh, Elle actually got me for my birthday the uh, kind of compendium, uh, fully compiled graphic novel version of Hench Girl I'm excited about. Any chance that you've read um, Black Panther, The World of Wakanda, that Tanisi Coates and Roxanne Gay do together? No. I just okay. finally saw Black Panther last week, the oh, movie. So good. So good. But I, w I would like, I mean, Roxanne Gay is, I think, the first black bisexual woman feminist to, to publish a comic. I'm pretty excited about it. Um, and I haven't read it. So that's on my list. So for the show notes, that was Black Panther, World of Wakanda? Yeah, and it's Ta-Nehisi Coates, who is the author of the 2015, um, I think, best-selling book, uh, Between the World and Me, and Roxane Gay, who is the author of Bad Feminist. Got it. All right. So, 
What's your third pick? Okay, I had to think about something like, I was like, oh, I should get something techy. Um, and, and as you know, <laughs> I'm a Luddite, so I have nothing techy. But then I thought of something. Um, I just returned from Belize on a um, mostly like an eco-travel adventure, but uh, hiking with a friend and, and snorkeling. And we got these 100% waterproof transparent seal phone cases that you can get on Amazon for your, your what are they called? Well, your iPhone, but for your smartphone so that you can use it underwater. And here's my review of it. Um, my phone didn't work with it, but it is an iPhone 5. <laughs> um, like it didn't fit in it? Oh, it totally fit in it. It didn't get any water in it. Everyone had them. Um, you know, it. she was able to get a picture of a really gorgeous, endangered hawksbill turtle. Ah, so um, it didn't work in it. Yeah, my, mine personally didn't work. Like, I couldn't get it to take pictures. But hers did. But, like, she couldn't, like, click anything. She just literally held her hand on it. And there was, like, music playing out of it. There was all kinds of things. Um, it, You know, it, there's pressure underwater. And so that was interesting. But but I think her greatest fear was that it was going to harm the phone. And honestly, no water got in. It was like six ninety nine. It was very cheap. Um, and we got a picture of a turtle. And um, it was a really um, beautiful experience with my close friend. And we continue to do these like outdoor adventures together. So I was glad we got that picture. So I'm going to... I'm going to, if I may, reword your review and you can tell me if I got it right. Okay. Okay. It's a cheap water protector for your phone. It's shit for scuba diving. Or snorkeling. But it would, yeah, definitely not work for scuba diving. But it would be great if you were canoeing and just didn't want to get your phone wet. Perfect. And like maybe dip it in and take like one picture. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know the, uh, the brand on this? Um... I think mine was called Seal, but I could be wrong. Like S E A L. Okay, I'll see what I can find. Okay, um, but overall, like everyone had them, they're cheap, and we we got one or two pictures out of it. So, well, that's awesome. I haven't seen your pictures yet. I'll, I'll send you one. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I follow you on Instagram, yet somehow you didn't Instagram your whole trip. Ah, uh, yeah, she's the she was the trip picture person. Yeah, so. Yeah, I I didn't really do that much. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. So my last pick is people have uh, frequently chosen these broad topics as picks, um, more concepts than actual things. And I think I pulled it off once, but this time I'm, I'm just going for it. And my pick is actually going to be emotional awareness. And this is something that I've been both studying and struggling with for a long time. Uh, you, of, you often hear uh, women talk about how guys aren't sensitive. And guys always assume that means that they don't cry enough at movies. And it actually comes down to being able to understand your own feelings enough that you could possibly communicate them. And in a lot of cases I found it means not even having to communicate them because understanding your feelings suddenly explains why you're feeling annoyed, jealous, angry, uh, happy, sad, like all of these things can be explained by deeper awareness of your own emotional processes. 
And I recently, I did a, you're familiar with like the visualizations and like kind of uh, Jungian uh, voyages, I guess. Do you know what I'm talking about? I am not. I don't want to go into like boring detail, but basically like ways to kind of meditate your way into your own psyche and discover uh, like body scans that find the where the body is holding emotion and then begin to understand why it's there, what it's for, what it's protecting, mm-hmm. um, what it's hiding and dig deep enough. And I, I again, won't go into it in detail, but I found a thing in the core of my psyche that I apparently had always known was there because it made perfect sense to me. Uh, it immediately, I was like, yep, that's a hundred percent real. And it, for uh, a week I've been reeling from it and it's changed so many things about the way I see myself, about the way I, uh, I understand myself. So, I'm not going I'm not going to talk about that in particular but the idea of emotional awareness is one that I'm super keen on right now. I think that's great. <laughs> I I think more people including myself could be more keen on it. <laughs> yeah, it 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 takes some it takes some work and a lot of bravery. I think the scariest thing to me is the idea of hey, let's spend an hour being introspective. And really examining what's going on inside my head. That's terrifying. But if I pull it off, there's actually, there's some things there that can provide some relief. I talk to my dog. That's, yeah. That's, I mean, it's, that's what I do. It helps a little bit. I'm guessing your dog doesn't ask the questions that really make it an interesting <laughs> conversation, though. You'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I get that. I often not. I I anthropomorphize my animals to an extent where uh, they do tend to ask the questions that my brain knows are the most pertinent. Yes. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to uh, an ending. Okay. I won't Thanks say for having me. the end because these conversations never feel like they've covered even half of what we thought we would. But um, let's tell people again where they can find you. I'm going to reference the previous episode and say that we listed uh, at FeministMJ on yeah, Twitter. Fem- yeah. Uh, Mary Joe, M-A-R-Y-J-O dot Clinker with K's on Facebook. Yeah. MJ Clinker on Instagram. Anywhere else you want to mention? I think that's all I have right now. Congrats on the associate professorship director position. Thank you. And uh, thanks again for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for listening to another episode of Systematic. You can find me at brettterpstra.com and as TT Scoff on every platform, including Facebook, Twitter, GitHub, Last.fm, and probably a bunch you've never heard of. Just search for TTSCOFF. You can also find Systematic on Twitter, so to tweet at me and my guest, and for updates and announcements, follow Systemcast, S-Y-S-T-M-C-A-S-T. If you're loving Systematic, don't forget to go leave an inspiring iTunes review. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.